All right, well, good morning. My name is Doug. I am the campus pastor here at Parkview East. Just want to welcome you guys here this morning. If you are new and just joining us for the first time, so glad that you've chosen to spend your morning with us. Um, we are in the middle of a series, started a couple weeks ago, weeks ago um, on the Beatitudes. And so um, we've been focusing each week kind of one Beatitude at a time. And so uh, really, the Beatitudes, if you do not know, are the beginning portion of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount was the greatest sermon that was ever preached uh, by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this first section in the Beatitudes, some people as they approach the Sermon on the Mount, they do it in a sort of inaccurate way. They will look at the Sermon on the Mount and they will see it as sort of a, a generalized list of suggestions on how we should live our life. That would be one way of approaching the Sermon on the Mount and it's not the approach that we're taking. Another way faulty way of looking on the sermon, at the Sermon on the Mount is to see it as a list of things you have to do in order to get to heaven. A list of items that you check off in order to get acceptance by the Lord. Rather, what the Beatitudes, what the Sermon on the Mount and especially the Beatitudes, really what it is, it is a challenge by Jesus for Christians to be Christians. That's ultimately what it comes down to. It is a challenge for us. It was then and it is today as we read it. A challenge for us to live the Christian life. To be Christians. That's ultimately what it is. Um, it gets to the heart of a question that has been asked for centuries. What essentially is the good life? A question that has been debated and argued by philosophers, by poets, by writers, authors, leaders over the centuries. Jesus gives us a description in the Beatitudes of what the good life is, what the kingdom life is. And so our task this morning, as we look at these descriptors of the good life, is to focus on simply one. Um, the First week we started off in the first beatitude, blessed are those who are poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Last week we talked about his second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And this week the third beatitude is our task, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. I would ask you, invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 37. Okay, we're going to take a little bit of a detour this morning. So Psalm 37, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Psalm 37. Um, we'll be there for a few minutes. We'll kind of be going back and forth between Psalm and Matthew throughout the message. Um, I don't have the words on the screen. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't have one on your phone or if there's not somebody near you, you're welcome at any time to go back there and grab one. Nevin's going to pass them out. If you want one, raise your hand. Now's the time. Going once, going twice. Very good. All right. So, math, we're going to start out in Psalm 37. Psalm 37. I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 11. This is going to be a really helpful psalm just in approaching this beatitude. Psalm 37, verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off. 
but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you um, for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you um, that this word, your word, Lord, is an eternal word, is an eternal truth. Thank you, Lord, that the lessons that you uttered that day on the side of the mountain, Lord, are the same lessons that we can learn and that are to be applied to our life today. Lord, I pray that as we walk away from this place this morning, Lord, that we would be challenged, that we would be convicted by your spirit through your word. Father, I pray that you would speak truth right now, that you would make your point clear. I pray that you would allow us the grace of even being able to examine our lives, our hearts, and to be able to see how it lines up with your will, Father. So make it clear to us now. Lord, I pray that you would be in this place, that you would fill this place with your spirit. We ask these things in your name. Amen. When I was growing up, we were a family that liked dogs. Any dog families around? Okay, bless you, bless you. Family that liked dogs. One of the dogs that we had when I was getting probably junior high age was a pit bull. It was a pit bull we got from kind of some different circumstances. My grandparents' farm, we took over this pit bull, and it was an old pit bull, and it was a mean pit bull. It probably fit every characteristic that you are thinking of pit bulls right now. His name was Brutus, not a friendly dog. Old and mean. Maybe some of you can relate to that right now. I don't know. Old and mean. Then after that, after Brutus, yeah, anyways, after Brutus died, no, none of you can relate, obviously, to that. I'm sorry. Um, after Brutus died, my brother, he, he fell in love with pit bulls, and he got another one. His name was Marley. And this pit bull was very, very different. Very different from Brutus in every conceivable way. This pit bull would really challenge all of the stereotypes that we have today of what pit bulls are, what they're to be used for, how they're to be treated, and kind of their demeanor. Marley was a different kind of pit bull. In fact, she was so different, there was a period of time where my brother, after my grandparents passed, he moved out onto their farm um, and took care of the house, and he took Marley with him out on the farm. And on the farm, our grandparents had sheep. Um, they had lots of sheep. And so what was really amazing about Marley is that my brother spent a lot of time taming and training this beast of a dog. When you would look at her, your initial reaction, your initial response would probably be fear. It was a mean-looking dog, but it had a gentle, gentle spirit. In fact, when uh, you know, springtime would come and the ewes would give birth to lambs, baby lambs, occasionally there would be lambs that would be rejected from its mother or perhaps the mom would die in the birthing process. And what Marley would do, what my brother had kind of trained Marley to do, was to bring in these baby lambs into the house. And Marley would build kind of a nest, a natural sort of nest for these lambs. And my brother would feed the lambs with a bottle. And Marley, a pit bull, a fierce Pitbull would sit there and lick the baby lambs. Would, the, the baby lambs would pretend to nurse off of her, okay? She would act as their mother. It was an amazing contrast. This ferocious looking beast and these gentle, timid lambs together in a bed. 
her caring for them. And, and that would be the way that they would bring, allow the lamb to grow up. It was so different, in fact, that there was so, I don't know exactly how it happened, but the newspaper in Dubuque found out about this and went out and took a big picture. And there was one day where it was, the, I tried looking for it before I got here, but I couldn't find it anywhere. There was a big picture of Marley and these lambs on the front page. And there was this whole article about this dog and how unnatural and uncharacteristic it was for this pit bull to be caring for these baby lambs. It serves as a really good for me as I'm thinking about what does it mean to be, be, to be meek. Blessed are the meek. It serves as a great illustration of what meekness is. Essentially, power under control. Power under control. What's really helpful about this illustration specifically is that it challenges, it challenged then, the reason why it drew some attention was because it challenged people's understanding of what it meant to be a pit bull. It challenged people's understanding. It flew in the face of every stereotype and every characteristic that people think of when they think of that specific dog. Now when Jesus is saying these beatitudes, these blessings, Jesus is doing the exact same thing. His intent is to draw contrast. His intent is to shock people as he tells them what the blessed life looks like. What the good life looks like. The good life, he says, looks like being poor in spirit. The good life, he says, looks like mourning, weeping over your sin. The good life, Jesus tells us, is not for those who are proud, who are successful, who are arrogant, and who are capable. The good life looks like meekness. Meekness. Jesus shocks people with the contrast. And it should be shocking to us today. If it's not shocking to us today as we hear this beatitude, odds are it's not shocking because it's familiar. So probably of the Beatitudes, this is the one that we are most familiar in hearing. You know, even the word meekness, I can't think of a time that it has been used, you know, kind of in our vernacular. There's a few little sayings here and there. Meek is a mouse. Is that how it goes? I think maybe that's one of them. Timid? Okay. Meek, M&M, you know, get the alliteration going. So anyways, but I can't think of a time that I've really used it or even heard it being used where it's almost not even a direct reference to this verse. Sometimes we can use it, but it's not a common word, right? And so our challenge as we approach this specific beatitude is a challenge of familiarity. It's a challenge of seeing a verse that we think we know and we may have a good understanding of, but being so familiar with it just being casually thrown out that we haven't allowed ourselves to dig a little bit beneath the surface to find out what exactly is our Lord Jesus saying when he says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. What is he saying? So our big idea today, what I hope to accomplish as we look at this passage, as we look at some other passages that will help us out, our big idea is to discover the blessing in being meek. Jesus tells us, blessed are the meek. There is a blessing for the meek. What is that blessing? In order to discover that, there's going to be three questions. It's going to be, honestly, the format that I'm probably going to use for every beatitude because for me, it's been really helpful. The first question that we'll ask is, well, what does it mean to be meek? The second question that we'll ask is, well, how are the meek blessed? And the third question, which I think really is the question, anytime you go to a church service on a Sunday morning, this should be the question when you leave, you have an answer to. 
that you ask yourself, and that question is, how, in light of everything that I heard, in light of all the verses that we read, in light of what he said, what should I do? What should my response be? If you come to church and you don't ask yourself that question, I would say you probably shouldn't come to church. I mean, there's a benefit in being here and having community of believers and being amongst one another. But ultimately, the reason we come here on Sunday morning, the reason that we meet together as a people is to exalt him and to read this book. Learn how to apply it to our lives. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. Some people can approach a church service or even a church in general, and they can ask a different set of questions. Their set of questions could sound something like, what's the church there for me? What's, what's there is for me, right? As opposed to what's here. And so sometimes when you ask that other set of questions, you bring your preferences, your likes, your desires to the church. And really, ultimately, this time this morning is sacred and set aside for our Lord. And we should leave here thinking about how we can obey his word. That's the hope. Those three questions this morning. What does it mean to be meek? How are the meek blessed? And how should we respond? So, the first question. What does it mean? I don't know if that's going to go away eventually, but... Somebody can pray that it does. Anyways, we'll just keep moving on. It'll be fine. What does it mean to be meek? Okay, what does it mean to be meek? There's two places ultimately that we're going to look at. The first place, okay, the, the passage that I read, Psalm 37, that's going to be the second place that we look at to understand a biblical framework for meekness. What, essentially what we're going to do with this first question is just paint a picture, a portrait of what meekness looks like. Trying to take different strokes and putting up an accurate picture. When Jesus says these words, what does he mean? The second place is going to be Psalm 37, what we just read. Before we get there, I want us to go to the first place that we learn about meekness, and it's ultimately from the Lord Jesus himself. The Lord Jesus himself. When we read and receive this verse this morning, it's very, very different than how the disciples originally heard the verse. Originally heard this specific beatitude, all of the beatitudes. The cultural climate could not be more different. It's a completely different time in history. We know through history that about a little over half a century before Jesus arrived... ...that the nation, this particular region, fell to the Roman Empire. It fell to the Roman Empire. Jesus was born and, and Israel has already lost its independence to the Roman Empire. In fact, the history of Israel is a history that we saw kind of with Nehemiah... ...that there's a very small sliver throughout the nation of, history, of Israel's history... ...where they actually have a kingdom established... But much of their history is a history of people who are in and out of exile, who have foreign rulers and powers governing and controlling them. There was the Maccabean Revolution that happened about 100 years before that, which essentially was, it was essentially a revolt against sort of a Greek influence into Israel. And so for about 100 years, they had some independence. But then this little startup called Rome came along and took over the nation of Israel. And in, in their place to govern, they set up these Herodian kings. We know the Herods, kind of in the Bible, as we read through the Gospels, King Herod, that was set to place to govern and extend Caesar's rule, further oppressing God's people. Jews hated the idea. They could not stand the idea of being subject to a pagan Gentile king. Men who did not follow the Old Testament. They could not stand it. 
So as Christ arrives, he arrives on the scene at a time when the Roman Empire was at its greatest. Extending from Europe all the way into Asia, there was little hope for Jews as they saw their little colony, essentially, looking at the vast Roman Empire. Many of them were left hopeless. But what we know as we look through Scripture is that there actually was hope. There was hope. And this hope was tucked in the pages of the first century Jews' Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament. It was a hope where there was a promise of a Messiah, one who would come and deliver them from their bondage and set up God's kingdom on earth. Behold, your king is coming. Now, during this time, as they waited, as Roman Empire tightened its grips around the region, and many people were waiting for this Messiah, during this time, there were false messiahs who would arise, who would come up, and their revolution would quickly be squashed by the Roman Empire. Their anticipation grew as Rome's oppression grew. The tighter Romans' grip became, the more they longed for the kingdom of God to come, for the Messiah to arrive expecting and longing for a great military campaign that would overthrow the Romans' rule. God's plan could not have been more different. As he sits there and teaches the ethics of God's kingdom, what these men are waiting for, expecting, is a military revolution. They are expecting a king to come to earth, establish his reign, and to push the rule of the Romans away. And set up God's kingdom on earth. That's what they're hoping for. That's what they want. From the moment that Jesus utters these words, blessed are the meek, disappointment will begin to creep into the nation of Israel. That disappointment will grow into frustration, which will give way to anger, eventually complete rage. They will go on to see him perform one miracle after another, one healing after another. And their hope will be that Jesus will use this power. They will see he's a powerful man. There's no one that could deny his power. And as they see his power on display, they grow frustrated. Why won't you use this power in the way that we expected you to? He came and he said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Does it mean to be meek? As Jesus utters these words, that's the cultural climate of the day. What does it not mean to be weak? I think it's helpful. There are many false understandings, misconceptions of what meekness looked like. That meekness is equal to weakness. It's not true. That meekness is timidity to some degree. Not true as well. It's not passive. Some think that being meek means you are incapable. It's not the case. It's not what Jesus means when he says, blessed are the meek. Jesus gives a very different picture of meekness. And this really, he really is the true picture of what we think of, what we should think of when we think of meek. Our Lord himself is the embodiment of meekness. He tells us this in Matthew 11, 28 and 29. It's his claim for himself. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle. The same word that's being used as meek, praus, for I am gentle. The exact same word in the Greek and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As Jesus describes himself to us, this is the word he puts on himself. Jesus is meek. He's meek. 
In Matthew 21, 5, Jesus quotes the Old Testament prophecy about the coming Messiah, about himself. This is pulled out of Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. This is what the people were waiting for. Their king to arrive, to descend from the heaven on clouds. This was the king they were waiting for. Listen to the rest of the passage. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, this was not a diversion from God's plan. It was an error in the Jews' understanding. What's shocking and what should terrify us is that it's in the text as you look at the prophecies that the Jews were reading, you can see, yes, the king is coming. And as you look at those prophecies, you can see he will come as a humble, meek man. That should terrify us. That for centuries, the Jews misunderstood, misread, took their own agenda and placed it on top of God's word. What they're out of their own hearts, what they wanted him to be, they wanted to force it on him from the moment he came to earth. They did not understand what they were reading. They had built an entire culture of anticipation that was based ultimately on a false idea. That should terrify us. When we approach the scripture, we have to be cautious not to make the same mistake. Not to take our own agenda, our own desires and wants, and to place them on top and to see Scripture through them. Rather, it should be the other way around. We should use Scripture to examine our own hearts. And our agenda should be His agenda. Our will should be His will. It's a great error. As Jesus walks on earth, interacting with people, pushing back darkness, He displays, He possesses and displays complete power over sin. ...and its effects, yet it's under control. So there's no mistaking his power, but the picture of this meek Savior... ...is that he has full power under control. We see it in Matthew chapter 4, right before this passage... ...right before the Sermon on the Mount. His temptation where he's led out into the wilderness by Satan and tempted. Ultimately, what Satan's tempting Jesus to do is to assert his power. And Jesus resists three times... Over and over and over again, he resists the temptation to assert his power. He controls himself, and in doing so, he's victorious. Then after the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 8 through 9, what we see is one miracle after another. One healing after another. It's, his power is on full display. Healing the sick, casting out demons, calming the storms, even raising a, a dead girl from the dead, bringing her back to life. If you were to summarize his ministry, we have a summary before at the end of chapter 4 and again in 9. Jesus was powerful in the way he lived, performed miracles, and he was powerful in teaching, the way he proclaimed and explained God's word. There was no mistaking that Jesus was the powerful human being, the God-man. You could see his power fully on display. Yet, throughout, as he walked on earth, his power was under control. He was submissive to the Father's will. 
full of power. What's amazing about this is the exact same spirit the Bible tells us that was in Jesus is in us. We have access to. And so the description we have as we look at the life of our Savior, of what does it mean to be meek? What it means to be meek ultimately is a life that is subject to God's kingdom. That's what meekness looks like. That when we are attempted to assert ourselves, that we trust in God and his plan, God and his reign. That's what meekness is. If the world were to look and make a version of their own beatitude based on something similar, they would say successful or dominant are they, are the dominant, for they shall conquer the rule and rule the earth. So successful and are the dominant, for they shall conquer and rule the world. God's beatitude, Jesus' ethic is completely completely turned over. The same spirit working in us which produces meekness is not afraid. It causes boldness in us. It's powerful and controlled. 2 Timothy 1.7 For God gave us a, sp a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. That Going back to Marley, it's a great example. A, a, a powerful beast that's under the submission that is tamed and controlled. It's a person who's yielded control to someone else. That's what it means ultimately to be meek. Now, if we were to go back to what we read earlier, Psalm 37, I'll just go through it real quick and pull out a few things. Because ultimately, as Jesus says this, what he's saying, what's in the, the backdrop of his mind as he states this beatitude, is Psalm 37. It's essentially a restatement of verse 11. So a few things as we look at Psalm 37 that will be helpful as we put together a portrait of what meekness looks like. The first thing that I think is helpful is we see it in verse 3 of Psalm 37. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend, befriend faithfulness. Meekness looks like trusting in God. That's what meekness looks like. It looks like trusting in the Lord. It's rooted in deep confidence that God is for us and not against us. This is why we don't fear. Fret not. Fret not yourself. Trust in the Lord. As we look at the world around us, those who embrace this kingdom ethic, um, who David calls, sorry, who, who reject the kingdom ethic, David calls evildoers, wrongdoers, we can be tempted to see them advancing in the world, see them taking promotions, living healthy, wealthy lifestyles. And we can be tempted... To, to crave that or to resent them. What God calls us to is a trust that his way is the way. Trusting that he is for us. That vengeance is in the Lord. Not for us to assert ourselves. Next as we move on in, in, verse, in verse 4. We see that, that meekness is delighting yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. We trust in him because he is faithful and we delight in him. Delighting him far exceeds the false joys that's put before us that the world has to offer. Ultimately what this results in is a spirit of contentment. Now I cannot think, now I've only lived 35 years, so I can't think of a time in my 35 years where there has been more discontentment within our culture. There is always, especially I think if you think about what the advancements in technology, this really ties into our desire to want more, to be better, to have the bigger best. Because every year there's a new iPhone, sometimes two, sometimes three. 
right? I mean, I just bought a new one a couple weeks ago, and I saw an article that there's another one coming out in the fall, and I mean, I kind of knew that's the rotation of when it gets released, but there was a part in me that thought, oh, I just waited a couple of more months with that cracked phone, you know? I could have I persevered, right? There's part of me that thinks, okay, how can I get that new one? Right? There's always something bigger and better. But when we delight in the Lord, there is a spirit of contentment that God's people should have. Because ultimately, He is our treasure. Meekness is delighting yourself in the Lord. It's also committing your way to the Lord. The Hebrew idea here of this word committing your way, we see it in verse 5a, which says commit your way to the Lord, is really the word for roll. Roll, R-O-L-L, roll. To roll onto the Lord. Because the meek know God can be trusted and treasured. They can roll our way, our problems, our relationships. We can roll our health. We can roll our fears, our frustrations, our hopes, our desires can be rolled back to the Lord. To be meek is to live your life with full knowledge of your limitations. To cope with the complexities and pressures and obstacles of life. And trust that God is able and willing to sustain us and guide us and protect us. We roll as, as we are tempted to, to face pressure and challenges in life. We roll those back onto the Lord. That's what it means to commit our way to the Lord. Meekness is also waiting for the Lord. We see this in verse 9b. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Notice here, this is especially helpful because it's the exact same promise. So you could say that waiting for the Lord is synonymous with being, weak, with being meek. With being meek. It can be tempted to assert our will or our agenda rather than waiting on the Lord and trusting in his timing. As we face the uncertainties and pressures in life, this can especially be a challenge. If you're like me, when there's difficult times that come in, I instantly, my reaction instantly within me is to think, how can I manipulate the situation? Or how can I turn things around? Who can I call? What can I do to take control of the situation? That's my knee-jerk reaction. What, as, as followers of this kingdom ethic who wait on the Lord, what our natural response should be, should be to fall to our knees and to cry out for God. Although we may not know his timing, we may not know when the health will come, we may not know when the income will come in, although we may not know when the problem will be solved or the person will be healed, our response is to fall to our knees, to trust in the Lord, to delight in the Lord, to commit our way to roll them back on him and to wait for his timing and to trust in it. Psalm 37 ultimately is a picture of what's in Jesus' mind as he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So quickly, how are the meek blessed? How are the meek blessed? Well, I think I can think of three ways that they're blessed. I think there's more, but just in general categories, three ways that the meek are blessed. They shall inherit the earth, okay? First of all, there is a, there's a blessing now. Blessed are the meek. So if you are here and you are a follower of Jesus, amen. I could, I'll, he brought me a napkin to wipe my face. Sorry, that's what that amen was for. If you are here today and you are a follower of Jesus, there is a blessing. And it's kind of the way this, the, the Beatitudes are structured, is that there's a blessing now and there's a future blessing. That's the, the, the kind of here but not yet nature of the kingdom, right? It's present, it's here, it's now, but it's not fully here yet, 
Okay, so there's a blessing now. And the blessing that is in it for, for us now is that the meek shall inherit the earth. The meek already, first of all, inherit, possess the earth. That's a reality. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul describes a Christian life as favorable, saying, We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Paul claims that even right now, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as we have received his grace through our faith, we possess everything now. He, he states it differently in 1 Corinthians 3. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. You are in Christ and Christ is in God. Because of our position as adopted sons and daughters, we have now inherited all things. We possess all things. There is a blessing for the meek now, this side of eternity. But we also know that there's a blessing that will come the other side of eternity. For the meek shall inherit the earth. In Romans 8, 16 and 17, the Spirit, Paul says, the Spirit himself bears witness that our spirit, that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So our position is we are heirs with Christ. Paul encourages Timothy to endure through suffering. He says in 2 Timothy 2, 10 through 12, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, they may, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if you have died with him, you shall also live with him. Because he, our sins were born on the cross when he died, our, ourselves, we died with Christ. And just as he raised, we're told that we, we shall raise with him as well. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Because of this hope, this truth, Timothy, in the midst of great suffering, in the midst of pain, be meek, for you shall reign with Christ. That's our future position. It's ultimately a promise of men and women being reconciled to the earth. Death, we know, entered the world through sin, fracturing the relationship between man and creation. Adam and Eve were placed in the garden. They were called to be stewards of God's handiwork. They were to care. They were to, to care for the garden, help it grow and thrive. The promise to be meek, that they shall inherit the earth, is the restoration of this original promise. Where Adam fails, Christ fixes. Because of his obedience, we now are given an inheritance. It's the fulfillment of the promise. I think the third blessing for the meek, is that we, as meek followers of Jesus, we become like Jesus. I mean, what a, a tremendous blessing for people to, the idea that God trusts us. Like, I know my heart, I know my sin, and it blows me away that God has designed it in a way that if people want a glimpse of what he is like, if they want a glimpse of what heaven is like, that they're not left with nothing to look at. 
The idea, the way he has designed it, is that, the, that people will be able to look at God's people and they will be able to see a glimpse, a foretaste of God's goodness, of his grace as we extend it to those around us, of his mercy. If we want an idea of what our God looks like, we should look at one another. What a blessing. He trusts us with his image. And our call is to reflect that back to the world. Matthew Henry says, the meek are like God and that they are masters of their own anger. Just like our Savior came to the earth and was able to control his power, ultimately that's what we're called to do as well. How do we respond? How do we respond? I think it starts by looking in our own lives and asking the question is, where do I see meekness in my life? It seems like a weird question to ask. How humble am I? Okay? But I think it's a question that if we want to see areas in our life where we should grow in meekness, which is ultimately what our hope should be, day by day growing more and more like our Lord Savior, we are called to examine our lives. Where is meekness evident in my life? Do I know that apart from the grace of God, I cannot be saved? Or do I think that my salvation is based on my performance? The things that I can check off the list, right? If I approach God with this understanding that I bring something to him, it's going to be very difficult for me to be faithful to what Jesus has called me to do. He needs nothing from us. What we have to offer are like filthy rags. It's the glory of the gospel. It does not matter where you have come from. It does not matter what you have done. His grace is sufficient. His grace for the worst of us. His grace is sufficient. What a glorious truth. What a glorious reality. As a follower of Christ, can I accomplish... Do I recognize that I can accomplish nothing on my own strength? Do I spend day to day, as I go to my job, as I care for my kids, as I love my wife, am I fully dependent on his spirit for strength? That's the position of the meek. How reliant are you on his spirit? Do I respond humbly and obediently to the word of God? When I open up this scripture and I see it begin to poke and prod its way into my heart and my life, and I see areas where they don't line up, is my, is my first response to make excuses. Is that how I first respond? Well, okay, okay, God, I didn't do that right. Well, that's because of this. That's because of him or her. You put him in my life. You brought it out of me. Do I make excuses? Or do I humbly respond in obedience? That's our hope. That's why we open the word. Another thing that we could ask our life is, how easily contented am I? Am I fully trusting and delighting in God? Or is there always in my life the opportunity for the next thing? Am I always looking for something else to fill me, to satisfy me? If it's just a relationship, God, then I'll be happy. If it's just a different career, then I will be happy. Do we delight ourselves in the Lord regardless of what the circumstances are? Now, I want to make it very clear. As you ask yourself these questions, the reality is this is impossible for the natural man. This is an impossible feat for the natural man. Meekness, as we see it modeled in the life of Jesus, as we read it described in Psalm 37, if we aspire to that, it is impossible for us to do 
apart from his spirit. All of these beatitudes, being poor in spirit, mourning over our sin, being meek, hunger and thirsting for righteousness, being merciful, being pure in God, being pierce makers, persecution, all of these beatitudes are only possible because of the spirit working in us. It is the result of repentance. That's where these beatitudes come into play. It's only possible with God's spirit. We cannot make ourselves poor in spirit. We cannot make ourselves mourn, and we cannot make ourselves meek. This is, a, this is the spirit of God at work. Do I trust him? Do I depend on him? Do I cry out to him? Do I see evidence of him at work in my life? Those would be questions I should constantly be asking. Just one last question. This would be a great one if you're in a community group. This would be a great one to discuss in a community group, in your formation groups, however you get together. And that question is simply this. Looking back on your life, what can you identify anything in your life that is simply unexplainable? Is there anything that you see evidences in your life that apart from God's spirit, you have no explanation for? Those are amazing, that's an amazing question. If you are right now in the market for a mate, just saying, that would be a good question to ask a potential mate, somebody who you're taking on a date. What in your life can you not explain apart from the spirit of the Lord? It shows if there are evidences in our life that have no explanation on our own, because of our own ability or strength, it shows a dependence, a delight, a committing of our way to God himself. Not a, not a dependence on ourself, but on him. Jesus gives us a beautiful picture. The way he walked this earth, the way he kept his power in check and didn't assert it, but at the same time stood up for injustice. At the same time stood up for the poor. At the same time stood up for the sick. He wasn't a weak man. He was a man who was subject to God's will. Fully subject. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you um, just for the opportunity to look at your word. Uh, we recognize, Father, that there are no finished products in this room, that none of us have arrived, that every one of us is on the exact same path, and our hope and our desire is that each day we would look more and more like you. Lord, we thank you for the teaching you give us in your son. Lord, and I pray that you would allow us, if there's anybody here that doesn't even know, that does not know, the grace that you extend to us, Lord, I pray that you would allow them even today to receive that, Father. Lord, I pray that even next week as we come back to this place, Lord, we recognize that there's pain in this room. There are challenges. There are difficult relationships. There's sickness, Lord. And our prayer is that we would be a people who would walk and depend every day on your spirit, Lord. Help us to do that. Give us a passion, a desire to be in your word to apply it to our lives, Father. But I pray that you would work your spirit out in this room, in these hearts. We ask these things in your name. Amen.